Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. After Thanksgiving, Tim, how much food did you eat? Way more than I should have. Same here. That's kind of how it goes. I did a thing I've never done before. Mm. I made a pumpkin pie. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And uh, how'd it go? So, in my opinion, the consistency of the filling was perfect. Okay. But it did not taste how I thought it should taste. There's a lot of differences with different pumpkin pies because of the different spices that you stick in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you got to kind of find the one that some of them I think have a little too much nutmeg. And yep. uh, some of that stuff. Well, and, and as I, I did look at a lot of recipes, mm-hmm. it seems like a very key difference is whether you use eggs or whether you use milk or evaporated milk. Yep. Sweet and condensed milk. Yeah. The, the, yep. And, uh, and so I went with eggs, mm-hmm. which is essentially a pumpkin souffle. <laughs> and the consistency was wonderful. It didn't have enough pumpkin-y to me. Oh, ah, okay. So we'll, you know. We'll modify. We'll come back around to it. My usual recipe is the sweetened condensed milk. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's, I actually got the sweetened condensed milk to try that. And then I was like, man, I think it's just easier to crack the eggs. I'll just do that. And sure. it was, it was fine. It wasn't oh. bad. Hey, you did it. Good job. Did you yeah. make your own crust or do you buy pre-made? Homemade, Ooh. Mama Carter approved crust. Oh, nice. Butter crust or shortening? Lard. Lard. Carter rendered lard. Woo! So sounds special. Pig was slaughtered. That the sounds fat really was gross. rendered down, <laughs> and then we have that in the container, <laughs> and uh, that's the key. Wow! And you can. And here's the thing: <laughs> I knew that my mom always used lard. Your mom makes lard. Well, she doesn't. She used to get it from the butcher, but there's uncles that I have that butcher pigs. Sure. And so we get lard from them now. Sometimes. And um, shout out to Uncle Ray and Uncle Mike. But um, I never could tell the difference. I just, I, oh yeah, mom makes a lard crust. I Now that I cook with it, I can tell the difference. Like there is a distinct difference in texture and taste between lard and butter. And uh, Where does shortening mix into all that? It's closer to lard than butter. Okay. Yeah. Because I think shortening is just like a... We'll call it vegetable lard. Okay. So. You use pig lard. Yeah. This is just gross. Lard lard. <laughs> <laughs> I better remember this if you ever make a pie and I'm around. It's, it, so the key, I will try it. It's what, it's what makes a flaky layered uh, pastry is, yeah. is like a cold fat that gets cut in. Gotcha. And there's special utensils for these things. Anyway, here's what's in this episode. <laughs> Even though I know all of you love talking about lard pie crusts. We are going to have our Andy's Weekly Wisdom. We have a quote from A.G. Sertayange, like we have been doing. We're going to have some listener feedback, where we have an email from Tiffany, and if I mispronounce this, I'm sorry, Zajac, Z-A-J-A-C, Zajac. We're going, to, we're going to interact with that email all the way from Virginia. And then we're going to get to our thing that we always do, some books and business. And then we're going to have a main content where... Tim talks about uh, an idea that he picked up on a, at a session in ETS, at ETS, and then has some other things he's going to talk about in Psalm 82, 
And uh, I don't know what the name of the book is. I can't remember. The Unseen Realm. The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. So a whole bunch of fun things there. Here's that whoosh sound. Whoosh. <laughs> Um, that I've never actually put in. It's it's beautiful. I'll have to get the soundbite of me saying lard, lard and putting that in there. Andy's Weekly Wisdom. <laughs> yes. Uh, here's the quote. And I didn't have this highlighted, so I don't think I've used it before. You haven't. If Okay, good. It's a great quote. Uh, let me see. So what this is, is knowledge but the slow and gradual cure of our blindness? Tim just rips that. No context, man. It's actually the very next page after the quote we just read before. Um, so talking about the time of our work and the continuity of our work, how, how do you work all of the time? But th- I just thought that just sounded really good, right? Oh yeah, it's excellent. I love what it. What is knowledge but the slow and gradual cure of our blindness? Because what does blindness connect to? Sight. Sight, okay, and the lack of sight would be sin. Sin blinds us. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, if I remember correctly, this is in kind of a context, maybe not immediate context, but he talks about always learning. And there's things you don't know about. And if you just say, well, I'm never going to learn about that, and you just shut your mind off, you're not, you're not going to have an intellectual life. You You have to, in the mundane moments, continue to learn and grow. And sometimes it's in your field of specialty and sometimes it's not. And I think that is what he's kind of getting at is there's this gradual cure of the things we don't know. Mm -hmm. And it's not as if you always, you're, you're never going to see everything, but you're gradually seeing more. Yeah. And I like the picture. So Annie's weekly wisdom, what is knowledge, but the slow and gradual cure of our blindness. And with that, we go to listener feedback. Mm-hmm. So we have some questions and thoughts. That's the tagline of Tiffany's email. And Tiffany, thank you for uh, writing to us. And we will plan to interact with a couple more of the things in your email at a later date. We just don't know when yet. But uh, we're going to interact with the first thing you mentioned, which is your son who has a legendary name. Legend. His name is Legend. Like, no, his name, it's not, his name isn't legend. His name is legend. Got There's it. so many, so many fun things we could do there, which we kind of already have. Anyway, so we're talking about first Samuel and he was reading first Samuel and there is in first Samuel 16, 14, a mention of an evil spirit from the Lord and a, in chapter 18, verse 10, a harmful spirit from God. Uh, referring to, I'm, I'm sure, uh, Saul. Right. I think. Yeah, this is the Saul text. So how do we have an evil spirit from God? And uh, if we can just expand a little bit on maybe the conundrum here, is is God using an evil spirit to complete his own bidding? Like he's using a demon to accomplish his work. You know, I think that's kind of the the tension here. And so, Tim, what do you think? Yeah, so First uh, Samuel 16, 4, oh, by the way, legend, good job reading God's word and thinking about it and seeing some kind of a problem and asking your mom about it. That's excellent. 
continue to do that. Even if you don't like the answer that I provide or whatever, hey, that's okay. You keep getting into God's Word. I love hearing about how kids are studying God's Word. So I've got an 11-year-old myself. So um, anyway, so 1 Samuel 16, 14, it states, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit, that's what the New King James translates it, a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And the, the wording that's there is like an evil spirit. The Hebrew word that's used there, ra'ah, mm -hmm. is the word for bad. Now, when we think of evil, we think of it often in moral categories, but the word bad is broader than just morally bad bad. Uh, it could be a bad storm. If it's a bad storm, we're not really making a statement about the storm's uh, morality. It's just it's a really calamitous kind of storm. Well, the Hebrew word kind of does the same thing. So what kind of bad spirit is this? Is this a morally bad spirit or is it a calamitous spirit that's going to create distress for somebody? Okay, and so that's why I think the New King James translates it a distressing spirit, because then it seems to soften the blow that God is sending a uh, evil spirit, whatever, uh, from the Lord to trouble him. Now, I'll push back against that. I don't have a problem with it being an evil spirit from the Lord. In fact, we have a similar story uh, to this one. Uh, in uh, 1 Kings, I think it's 1 Kings 22, where you have the story of Micaiah. Yeah, 1 Kings 22, uh, in fact, legend. I would encourage you to read this story. It's a fascinating story about how God uses or maybe allows evil spirits to accomplish his will. And this is going to connect a little bit to our main content today from Psalm 82. You see, every king that is in a position of authority, that king is placed there by God. And this is an ancient Near Eastern, uh, an ancient custom in the ancient Near Eastern writings. King after king, they always expressed that their reign was a valid reign because the deity, whether it's the one true God or whatever deity they worshipped, had placed them on the throne. Uh, so this is not just even a biblical thing. It is something that the ancients uh, understood. And... God had sovereignly appointed Ahab to the throne of Israel, and the time for his rule was over. And so, what happens in 1 Kings 22? Well, Micaiah is the prophet of the Lord, and it's actually a fascinating story. You have sarcasm in the text, uh, because... Um, I'll read some of it. 1 Kings 22, 15. Then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramot Gilead, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. Okay, now I kind of read that with a specific kind of a tone. It was a sarcastic tone. And Micaiah was being sarcastic. Because in the very next verse, the king, he understood. He knew that Micaiah was being sarcastic. The king states, so the king said to him, many times, or how many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So Ahab knew that Micaiah was, uh, was just sarcastically giving him the message that Ahab wanted. 
So then Micaiah gives him the real response. Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his own house in peace. So the obvious implication here is that Ahab is the shepherd, and the shepherd has died. And so everybody is dispersing back to their own house. So the obvious implication, which Ahab gets it, is, yeah, you're going to go to war to Ramot Gilead, and you're going to die. That's what's going to happen here. So, of course, if you know you're going to go to battle and you're going to die, then guess what you probably shouldn't do? Don't go to war. Shouldn't go to battle. Yeah, stay home on this one. That would be the wise choice. It would be the wise choice if you believe the prophet of God. However, however, the story goes on. In 1 Kings 22, 18, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, because Jehoshaphat's the king of the southern kingdom in Judah, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? See, so Micaiah always prophesies evil to him. Then, here's our key text, 1 Kings twenty-two nineteen. Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by, on his right hand and on his left. Okay, so now here's a question for you, listener. What is this host of heaven? What is the Lord in this presence, and who, who are these this host of heaven. Oh, they'd be like the good angels, Michael the Archangel, blah, 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 blah. Is it the, the uh, you know, the, uh, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ? You know, people speculate, we aren't really sure, but the host of heaven there. Okay, 2220. And the Lord said, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramot Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Okay, do you see how what's going on here in the throne room of God? God says, who's going to go and persuade Ahab to go to war so that he can die at Ramot Gilead? And this, this uh, uh, one says this, and another person says that. You have this whole discourse going on. Then in 2221, then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And the Lord said, You shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Now what did God just do? Command an evil spirit to go and deceive a king, whom a wicked king, by the way, whom he had placed in a position of authority, to go to war to then die. Okay? I mean, my God's big enough. I'm okay with that. We might want to think about it a little more theologically and that these evil spirits, they want death to everybody. And the only thing that stops or stays their hand is a good God. Mm -hmm. And so what does God then do? In this instance, he's like, you can have him. Yep. And so God in his providence allows the evil spirit to take him. So what happens with Saul? God withdraws his spirit because of Saul's sin, leaving a vacancy which is then filled by a distressing spirit, an evil spirit which plagues Saul. And, um, and so that's what you have. I think that's how I would answer your question there. God allows um, in his providence, in his sovereignty, he has control over all. Uh, he allows the wicked spirits to do certain things at certain times, uh, which is what they want to do anyway. Is he withdraws his 
restraining hand in certain circumstances. And you see that both in 1 Kings 22 and then in the 1 Samuel passages. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And it's not inconsistent with what we see God allowing in other passages like Job. And uh, just a couple other passages that came to my mind. You know, James 1, God is not tempted by evil. And so I think what you re- what you have coming into tension in a a narrative, a story like this, or in our own minds, like the tension that we're trying to resolve is uh, you could really boil it all the way down. You know, well, how can a good God cause or allow evil? Which is not an uncommon question in apologetics. Where did evil come from? If God's good, why would he let that happen? Right? Right. And um, I think in answering that question, we always hold intention. The goodness of God, the power of God, and the justice of God. Mm -hmm. So if God is good, he does good. He knows what's good. He allows good. He brings good. If God is all-powerful, then he can give and withhold good, as well as he can give and withhold justice. And then, you know, as Tim pointed out a couple of times there, Ahab's wicked. So is God unjust to allow this judgment to happen? No, he's not. And uh, his mercy has reached an end. Ahab deserved punishment way sooner. Yes. And God's mercy is over. And, And that's where we don't see or understand, know, those virtues to the extent that God knows them or is them in his character. And so it's hard, it's hard to hold uh, goodness and justice intention from a finite standpoint. But I'll just commend, just like Tim did, that you're, you're asking the right questions and you're thinking about the word of God, which is a great thing. So keep seeking those things out. And uh, yeah, uh, let's and see. Do it with your friends and there you go. You're a thinkling man. Boom. Honorary thinkling right there. And uh, so next thing here is we have some business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. And uh, I'll go first. So I have finished For the Children's Sake by Susan McCauley, which is essentially her uh, quoting and walking through some of Charlotte Mason's education philosophy and I'm not sure if I'll do a full content on it. I think it's worth your time as a parent. Uh, but it's not, I mean, I don't think it's groundbreaking. It's things that the word of God would lead you to anyway. But it, it condenses it in a way that it might be accessible and helpful. Uh, a lot of material in there I found really helpful. And, uh, you know, I'll probably come back around to it in a year or two when I teach the class again. And so maybe we'll have a full episode on it at that point. Maybe we will in a month or two. I'm still not sure, but I will give it a ranking. I, I, uh, you know, we don't like decimals at the Thinkling's goodness nope. scale, even though I arbitrarily assign them. It's it's either a five or a six, but I'm going to lean to five. I, I don't think it's it, it's not like a you have to own this, you have to read it. Uh, but if I was a parent or thinking through how I would want to disciple my children, or certainly if I was going to homeschool, uh, I think she really helps think through some of the foundations of the, how, like, 
what type of authority do you have? How do you learn? And how does that incorporate the different personalities of your children? They're not all going to get arithmetic right away. They're not all going to get the same things in the same speed. And some of them are going to struggle to read. And how do you do that? And really talks about having them read good books, which is fantastic. But kind of kind of talks about it theoretically, but then maps out how she would go about it. And uh, it doesn't answer all the questions, but it brings up some really good questions. It's it's good. A five. I think it's five. So, um, yeah. For the children's sake, Susan McCauley, give it a five on the goodness scale. Awesome. Uh, so my books in business, I'm going to actually uh, talk about a fiction book. Um, I, I mentioned Unseen Realm earlier. I haven't really read Unseen Realm, so I'm going to save that, that rating. I'm going to read a little bit in the content, but uh, the book, Words of Radiance by Brandon Sanderson. This is book two in the Stormlight Archive. Uh, So I talked about The Way of Kings, I don't know, a couple months ago or something like that. And we have like two hours left to listen to uh, Words of Radiance. And uh, so, I mean, it's like 50 hours long, so I think I can give a (laughs) review now on it. Um, I have really liked it, actually. Uh, In fact, these first two books have very little that I find questionable in them, uh, in that I would even be fine with, I say, my 10, 11, 12-year-old boys reading them. Uh, There's very little drama and uh, relationship stuff. Uh, There is a little bit in both of them. In this book, Words of Radiance, uh, there's a little bit of romance going on, but it's not uh, developed, and it's... I mean, you know, I've written Song of Songs for Singles, and so there's obviously going to be some things that I don't like about it. But for cultivating uh, courage and uh, Christian virtues, it's like excellent. It's really good. I have been very pleased by it. Uh, In this volume, Words of Radiance, the main character, Kaladin, he he has to struggle with essentially forgiveness. And he needs to forgive somebody who hurt him very, very badly. And what he wants to do, and he has in his power, is to kill this individual. And he could get away with it. Um, but that becomes one of like the words of radiance, one of the words of goodness, is to do what's right, even when it concerns somebody that you hate. And I was like, wow, this is actually very similar to the Christian virtues. I mean, the big thing that it lacks is a fear of God. Mm. Okay. But the way that he lays the story out and continues it and plays it out is, is it, um, um, what looks simple and what looks right and what looks good, uh, but he knows deep down it's wrong. Okay. It's missing the, uh, metaphysical component of a true and just and good God, but, um, he needs to do it anyway. And then just believe that things are going to work out. I mean, that resonates with the Christian metaphysics. Mm. Uh, so I actually really have enjoyed it. I think it's uh, been a, a fun read as well. Uh, there's a lot of, of fun aspects to it. And I'm trying to think through, you know, was there some questionable stuff? There may have been some questionable stuff, actually. I remember just there's one of these interlude chapters that I skipped over. And uh, he has these interludes every once in a while. So there actually might be a, a, a chapter there that you might want to edit out. 
uh, between like the third and fourth part. But plus, it's like a thousand two hundred pages or some ridiculous <laughs> thing like that. So if you have one of those kids that just seems to chomp through stuff like crazy, um, they'll take them a little while. <laughs> I still have not started them. Someday. I'll give it maybe uh I really liked it. I'd put it maybe a six, six or a seven on Ooh. the Thinkling's Goodness ago. Wow. I Tim. was very impressed at the end with how he developed the main character and Christian virtue. The guy's a Mormon. Yeah. And at the same time, um uh oh, who's the guy that wrote the Aragon books? Paulini, Christopher Paulini. He just released uh Murtag. It's the fifth book in the inheritance cycle. So with Aragon and all those, my my uh, oldest son has been reading through that fifth book, and he said, "Yeah, Dad, it's like not near as good as Words of Radiance. Words of Radiance by Brandon Sanderson is way better, and part of that's actually the the worldview, the Mormon worldview of all yeah. things is closer to us than the atheistic worldview of Paulini." Yeah, you know what's interesting to me about fiction is like what about it appeals to us. And if we love what we're supposed to love, we will love the things that get us to love the things we're supposed to love. So a virtuous book, we will love more than an invirtuous book. But if our affections are off, then we might you know, see a really good book as dim, and we might see a really bad book as really good. You know, And it's just interesting how that, thinking about that own spectrum, you know, why do I love the books I love? And, uh, but uh, all that to say, I, I will need to give this a try with that, with that rating. So just to, to rehearse again, it's the words of radiance by Brandon Sanderson, a six or seven. Yeah. Six or seven. Well, it's not a book that you, it's not the highest category. I think was it eight, nine and 10 are the highest. Yeah. So I would put it probably, I would put it at a seven. Yep. All right. So let's move on to our main topic of the episode. Take it away, Tim. Okay, so I was at ETS, and uh, two different conversations uh, arose that concerned Psalm 82. I went to a session, like um, this African woman was presenting uh, a paper on Psalm 82. Uh, I'm going to read Psalm 82. I'll talk to you about the problem a little bit, and uh, let me get here quick. Okay, so Psalm 82, a Psalm of Asaph, verse 1. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, You are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Okay, so this uh, Psalm of Asaph, that's it, it's eight verses, has been a source of conversation, uh, particularly since Michael Heiser wrote The Unseen Realm. Uh, Michael Heiser wrote his dissertation on this psalm. It was a new thing to him when he uh, worked through 
worked through Psalm 82 because I read the New King James and it's technically God stands in the congregation of God. Okay. God stands in the congregation of El. So the net translates it. God stands in the assembly of El. In the midst of the gods, he renders judgment. Now, when we were in 1 Chronicles 22, we talked about this assembly of the gods. Uh, not the gods. We talked about this, uh, this assembly of uh, the hosts of heaven. That was the terminology used in 1 Chronicles, or no, 1 Kings. Kings, sorry. 1 Kings 22, thank you. And this, this seems like a similar idea that's going on here, and that you have God standing in the assembly of, well, then who's El? Who is this person? El, as the net translates it. Now, uh, the New King James translates it of the mighty. And so they take El as being a reference to like a mighty individual, like, wow, that person is godlike because they have so much power, authority, or can do so many great things, whatever it might be. So they kind of metaphorize it, whereas the Net Bible believes it's referring to a deity. And so God is standing in the assembly of El, a deity. In the midst of the gods, he renders judgment. So here is God in the midst of gods, in the assembly of El, and he is executing judgments. And that's what's going on here. So what is up with this pantheon of God? And uh, Michael Heiser, in his book, Unseen Realm, he talks about this. And he talks about even when uh, he was first introduced to it, he was working on his PhD in Hebrew studies. He, and it was an Old Testament theology class where he... Um, interacted with this idea. And he, he writes here, I saw immediately that, that the second instance needed to be, well, here, there it was plain as day. The God of the Old Testament was part of an assembly, a pantheon of other gods. And then he stays, needless to say, I didn't hear a word of the sermon. My mind was reeling. So he kind of talks very sensationally in how his theology was totally challenged or changed as a result of this revelation that God is standing in the assembly of El in the, uh, in the midst of this pantheon of gods. So what is going on in Psalm 82? And is there a pantheon of gods that the Lord God okay, is the chief one. And I attended this session at ETS. How are we doing? Are you following me okay? Yep. Okay, hopefully the listener is as well. I uh, attended this session at ETS uh, by this African woman who talked about Psalm 82 and how she was baffled that our Christian, or no, our Western minds were uh, um, confused by the meaning. Because of course, she's African, and within Africa, they have lots of witchcraft, and a lot of that stuff is still taking place. And so, uh, well, what are the gods? Well, it's these other deities that the witchcraft, that the witch doctor is interacting with, and so on and so forth, okay? And so she was like, this is clearly what the text means. And so I'm sitting in this session, and um, I mean, I was familiar with Michael Heiser and his view on the unseen realm. Um, and the conversation that kind of materialized was uh, m m well in favor of Heiser and then even her approach, which, by the way, I'm going to push back on this whole pantheon view 
and Heiser's view of the unseen realm. Uh, I'll get there. I, I'm not a big Heiser fan. I don't think that he uh, correctly understands Psalm 82. Um, but actually, Isaiah 14 can help us understand the relationship between a divine being and a physical human. Uh, also, um, C.S. Lewis in Paralandra interacts with the same idea as well. And you might hear something uh, about that one on the Thinklings podcast in the not-so-distant future. Mm. Hmm. But anyway, um, back to Psalm 82. Uh, the person presented this paper, very similar to Heiser. Pretty much everybody was in favor of it. This one guy, though, which this is one of the nice things about um, ETS. David Firth is his name. I've interacted with several of his books. Um, he is a really smart guy. And he said and made this point to her, the, there's different words for God. There's Elohim, okay, which derives from El. So you technically have Elohim stands in the assembly of El in the midst of the Elohim, he renders judgment. But what even her African language did is it's not consistent because everybody always takes one of the Elohims to be God's personal name. Mm -hmm. So they say the Lord God, the true God, okay, stands in the assembly of El and in the midst of the gods. Yeah, they take Elohim. Yeah. They, they translate it differently, whether it's in the first part or the second part. Right. So in her, and, and he pushed back and he's like, yeah, but everybody wants the first Elohim to be God's personal name, but it isn't. It's just Elohim. You know, why is that? Well, it's in this portion of the book of the Psalter. And there are some other answers to that, which I don't want to get into. Okay. But um, I think that the gods here uh, are, are, uh, are not this pantheistic uh, um, uh, pantheon of gods. Okay. And, and you might be like, well, why not? It sure sounds like it. Well, yeah, if you look at only verse one. But what does verse two say? You want to read it for us? So I'm reading ESV. How long... Will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, Selah? Okay, so who judges? I would assume that'd be the Lord. Okay, and then who is judging unjustly? Obviously not the Lord. Yeah. Okay, so somebody is judging unjustly. In what manner are they judging unjustly? Okay, can you read verses 3 and 4? Uh, verse 3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Okay, so are, who is the poor and the fatherless? Are they like some inferior spirit being? No, it's, it's definitely got to be referring to people. Yeah, it's got to be referring to people. Well, then who is the judge? A spirit being? It's probably people. It's probably people. Okay. So the idea that a judge is God is not foreign to the biblical text. So in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 16, 
Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear, um, you shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. When a judge judges, he is supposed to judge justly because his judgment is whose? God's. God's. Okay. So within an Old Testament world, you had two individuals who possessed, I shouldn't say two individuals, two offices that possessed a great deal of power who were supposed to rule or use their justice in a manner consistent with God's. Yeah. Okay, do you follow me? Yeah. And one of those was the judge. And then who is the ultimate judge of any land? God. Okay, God, okay. But who is the physical, earthly... Oh, okay. the king. Ju- the king, yep. exactly. Okay, so the two offices would be the judge and the king, and both of these individuals were in, the, in, the, in, in a position that God you know, would hold them accountable for. Okay. We had a whole conversation about Ahab. Who appoints the kings? God does. Mm -hmm. God appoints the kings and puts them in a position of power and authority. Okay. Might a spirit being then affect or um, impact that judge or that king? Oh, Most absolutely. definitely. And yeah. we have multitude of biblical references that support this idea that spirit, there's a spiritual battle that's taking place that is then impacting uh, various individuals uh, who are in positions of justice, judging, or political authority. Not the least of which would be Satan. And particularly in Isaiah 14, We have how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. So you who weakened the nations, who is this Lucifer individual? Well, it states in context in Isaiah 14, 4, you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. This this text, this, this proverb against the king of Babylon It stretches from verse 4 all the way to verse 21. This individual, this Lucifer, this shining one, you, O Lucifer, O shining one, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who conquered the nations. Who conquered the physical nations? Was it Satan, the spirit being, or was he empowering an individual Hmm. to conquer the nations? Okay, it's clearly the latter. And so you get this conflation between the spirit being and then the actual person to the point where the, um, the, uh, the identity between the spirit being and the actual person becomes almost blurred. And uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this in his Paralandra book a little bit too. And, you know, maybe we'll talk about that on a future episode of the mm, podcast. Maybe. maybe. Okay, so verse 13, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Well, what are the stars of God? Those are other rulers. A star in the heavens would be a, um, it could be an angel, but then it's also a king. And we see this even in the identity of Jesus. 
because Jesus is identified in Revelation 22 as the morning star. So also the morning star is here in Isaiah 14, 12. Lucifer, son of the morning, that is the morning star. He's like the false morning star as opposed to the true morning star. And what's the brightest star in the night sky? In the night sky. In the night sky, not the sun or the moon. <laughs> it's a little late. My first thought was, well, the sun. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It's Venus. North? Venus is a planet. Venus, yeah. the planet Venus, is the brightest star. It would be the morning star. Jesus is the morning star. Satan, well, the Antichrist, the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, he is the son of the morning, the morning star, and he is the ruler. And now let's go back to Psalm 82. Now let's wrap this up because we're tired. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit. Psalm 82, verse 5. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. What does a judge do? A judge is to just judge justly, thus making the, the society stable. If a judge is accepting bribes, then the foundation of justice in the land becomes unstable. So this is clearly referring to actual people, not spirit beings. In verse 6, I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. This would be sons of the Most High, like the sons of God. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. So what's going to happen to these judges who are judging unjustly? They course, die. They die. And it says, like men. Well, how do spirit beings die like men? And that's one of the problems with understanding the gods here mm -hmm. as spirit beings. How do they die like men? And then they say it's fall like one of the princes. So then verse um, verse 8 wraps us up and it states, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. And this is why I believe that it's Elohim throughout the text, because um, God's personal name, Yahweh, is his personal name, and it's relevant and most connected to Israel. But this is not an Israel-only psalm. It's all the nations. It's all the nations. Yeah. And so the more general word for God is used in Psalm 82, which is why God, which would be a reference to the Lord, okay, the one true God, judges in the congregation of El. What would be the assembly of El then? What the nations. Would, yeah, well, at the beginning of the psalm, the assembly of El. Okay, I mean, I'm instantly going to Daniel chapter 7, where you have a throne room terminology. And even within that throne room terminology, you get a judgment being leveled in favor of the saints of the Most High. And this is a very eschatological text in Psalm 82, 8, where God will judge the earth and will inherit all nations. This is like Daniel 7, verses, I think it's like 12 through 13, 12 through 14, or 10 through 14, right in that text. God will one day judge the unjust judge, will one day judge the unjust king for their failure to uphold God's justice on the earth. And for the believer who may go through a season of time where they receive 
false justice, they can take comfort knowing that the one true God will one day rule upon this earth. And those judges, those wicked individuals who rule contrary to the way that God designed the world, contrary to true biblical justice, will be judged. Psalm 82 confirms it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast. The Thinklings want to remind our listeners that the Thinklings podcast is our personal production. Our conversations, book discussions, and viewpoints may not represent the views of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Any questions or feedback should be directed to us at the Thinklings podcast.